Amen. How do you respond when you're accused of something? If you're like most people, if you're like me, your walls probably immediately go up. You probably become defensive. And if what you're being accused of is untrue, you probably become upset and angry as well. I remember one time I got a call from a man who had left our church, who I'd spent a lot of time with. And he left in part because of his frustration with me. And when I got this phone call, I thought to myself, as he began to talk, I thought he was going to apologize for the way that he had left and some of the, the unnecessary drama that he had caused. But instead, he spent probably close to half an hour aggressively criticizing me and venting accusations and frustrations that he had never told me before. And most of them uh, were based on assumptions about my motives that were either wrong or greatly exaggerated. A lot of it was based on misunderstandings of situations that he only had partial information about. And I'm very glad that conversation was on the phone and not in person because inside, not only was I deeply hurt by what this old friend was saying, but my mind was racing the whole time, trying to to keep up with all the things I disagreed with in his complaints and and pondering, you know, how can I defend myself? Like, how, how can I correct the record when there's so many errors that this guy is, is assuming. Many of you have had similar experiences, maybe with a, a family member or coworker or neighbor where you've been misunderstood or, or even felt attacked. And in today's message, we're going to see that the most unjust accusations in all of human history were directed at the Lord Jesus Christ. They were directed at Jesus, and we're going to answer the question, how did Jesus respond? How did Jesus respond to false accusations about him? To do this, we're going to break our text into two main points. We're going to look at Jesus before Pilate and Jesus before Herod. So Jesus before Pilate and Jesus before Herod. Before we jump into the first main point, let me give you a quick high-level summary of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is an account of the life and ministry of Jesus like each of the other three Gospels, and it begins with this helpful purpose statement. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed." Luke wrote his gospel based on eyewitness testimony to give clarity about who Jesus is and confidence about his teaching and work for those who are not there to see it directly for themselves. With that background in place, let's pick up the events in chapter 23, where Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and then tried illegally at night by the Jewish leaders who condemned him to death for claiming to be who he was, the Messiah or the promised divine king of God's people. Luke 23 begins this way. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. The whole Sanhedrin mentioned in verse 1 refers to uh, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were the, the rulers of the Jewish nation. 
Now, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they usually were deeply uh, divided. You see this throughout the, the scriptures. You see this in, in their interactions in the Gospels and also in, in the book of Acts. They were deeply divided usually, but they were unusually united in their hatred for Jesus and their desire to see him killed. This group, though, they had one big problem, though, and that problem is that even though they agreed Jesus needed to die, they didn't have the power to kill him. Rome did not allow those that they ruled to exercise the death penalty. And so to actually put Jesus to death, they needed Pilate to condemn him as well. Now, they knew that Pilate could care less about their religious debates, which meant that they had to find a way to twist their religious charges against Jesus and make them relevant to Pilate. Now, they did have some strong political leverage to work with, though, because Pilate could not afford to dismiss any concerns brought by the Jews because he was on thin ice with Rome for the numerous failures he had to maintain peace in Judea during his reign. If you were a Roman governor, you had basically two major responsibilities. Keep the peace in your province and keep the taxes flowing to Rome. That's what you were supposed to do. And Pilate, he had struggled to keep the peace because the Jews despised him from the beginning of his coming to power. A big reason they despised him was because of his brutality and cruelty. In one instance, he demanded that Caesar's image be brought into Jerusalem, which none of his predecessors had done because the Jews viewed it as idolatry. And so when they came to protest, he sent soldiers to attack the crowd with deadly force. The New Testament, it, it also bears witnesses, witness to Pilate's cruelty in Luke 13, where Pilate apparently had some Galileans killed who had come to make sacrifices in Jerusalem. And then do you remember what he did? He took the blood of those that he had executed and he sprinkled it in their sacrifices. This was deliberately provocative. This was intentionally meant to, to be spiteful and offensive. History includes other examples of Pilate's cruelty and, and, brutal, and bloody rule. And that's why Jewish philosopher Philo called him an exceedingly wrathful man who was known for the bribes, the acts of pride, the acts of violence, the constant murders without trial, and ceaseless and most grievous brutality. Word of this had reached Rome, and Pilate had been reprimanded by Caesar at least once. And so if he failed to maintain peace again, not only could he lose his position, it would also be possible for him to lose his life as well. Now, all that to say this, Pilate had a lot of pressure on him to keep the Jewish people and especially their leaders happy. And the Jewish leaders who brought Jesus to him, they were fully aware of that fact. They came accusing Jesus in verse two of being a political subversive who is seeking to oppose Caesar by protesting taxes and setting himself up as a king instead of Caesar. Now, were any of those charges true? Was Jesus misleading the nation? Of course not. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He was trying to redirect the nation who had been misled by the religious leaders. Had Jesus opposed paying taxes to Caesar? Not at all. This was a bold-faced lie. Jesus had publicly given the profound command to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But what about the accusation that he claimed to be king? Pilate's first question to Jesus, after hearing these accusations from the Jewish leaders, it, it helps put this charge into perspective as well. In verse 3, Pilate asked Jesus, 
Are you the king of the Jews? Commentator Leon Morris, he helpfully points out Pilate's shock here when he says, Pilate's first question of Jesus is identically worded in all four Gospels, and in all four, his you is emphatic. What the Jews said prepared him to meet a resistance fighter, but one glance at Jesus was enough to show the utter absurdity of such an idea, and it wrenched this incredulous question from his lips. The idea when Pilate looked at Jesus is, you are the king of the Jews? You're the king? You're the one that they're making these accusations against? Pilate immediately discerned that Jesus was no insurrectionist or zealot. But notice how Jesus answered his bewildered question. When asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, you say so. Jesus could not deny being the king of the Jews because it was true. Jesus is God. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. However, Jesus answered in a veiled way as he had done throughout most of his ministry because he knew that he was a very different king than the Jews were hoping for. This was the main reason that the Jewish nation had been so enthusiastic about Jesus and and then quickly turned on him. It's because he refused to rally the nation and use his supernatural power to free the Jews from Rome. Now, not only could Pilate discern that Jesus was no direct threat to Rome, but it didn't take him long to realize that Jesus was different than any other man that he had ever stood before. Mark 15 says this, And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Pilate had seen many men facing death, but he'd never seen one like Jesus. The Gospels tell us that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and he also was able to tell that the Jewish leaders wanted him dead because they were jealous of Jesus. He could just read that. It was so obvious. Yet Jesus didn't try to defend himself or understandably plead for his own life. Jesus had a peace that surpasses all understanding. And his composure and poise in the face of death are highlighted in John 19 when Pilate warned Jesus that he had the authority to crucify Jesus. And Jesus responded calmly, you would have no authority at all over me unless it was given to you from above. Jesus knew he was about to die and he wasn't intimidated or afraid of death. All of that clearly amazed Pilate, but my guess is that there's something else that likely added to his amazement. Not only was Jesus filled with peace in the face of injustice and the passionate hatred of the Jewish leaders, Jesus was also filled with unconquerable and unmistakable love. His silence on trial, it wasn't the type of one resigned to their fate, like someone who just given up hope or who had just come to hate life. It also wasn't the silence of someone too proud to let his enemies have the pleasure of seeing him beg for mercy. I remember seeing a a Western years ago, I don't remember what it was, but there's a scene where this man, he's about to be killed by his enemies, and he refuses to beg, they want him to beg, he refuses to do it, but you can just see like the hatred that he has in his eyes for the people who are about to kill him. And that's obviously not what's going on here either. Now this silence It came from the one who commanded his followers to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. And he would do that just hours later on the cross when he cried out so that those who mocked him while he was dying could hear him say, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. In my mind's eye, I can imagine Jesus. I, I picture him in this moment, looking back into the, the, the eyes of those who are filled with hate, spouting, spouting lies at him. And in Jesus, he's silently praying for them. They're pressing for his death. He's praying for their souls. And when his gaze met Pilate's gaze, I'm sure Pilate must have felt Jesus' genuine concern for his own soul as well. That helps explain the otherwise unexplainable hesitation Pilate had toward condemning Jesus to death. His heartless brutality was what had gotten him in trouble with the Jews in the first place. And now all he had to do to keep the Jewish leaders happy and to protect his position was to condemn an innocent man to death. Now, why does he have this sensitive conscience all of a sudden? I think it's because Pilate sensed that Jesus was more than an innocent man. He was an amazing man, unlike any that Pilate had ever interacted with or known. And while he didn't want to upset the Jews, he also didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus' death either. And we're going to see that even more clearly next week. The fact that this cruel and career politician who had every motivation career-wise to condemn Jesus believed that Jesus had done nothing wrong and was afraid to put him to death It highlights Jesus' totally unique innocence. Not only had Jesus not committed any sin, he's the only man to ever live who had, or I'm sorry, not only had he not committed any crime, he's the only person to ever live who'd never committed a sin. This is why Pilate was so relieved to find out that Jesus was from from Galilee in verse 6. Roman law, it allowed for a criminal to be tried in his hometown or where the, the crime had been committed. And since Herod was in Jerusalem already for the Passover, he thought he'd found a way to save face and then avoid the responsibility for making a decision about Jesus. Sadly, this is how many people respond still today when they encounter the truth about Jesus and find out that he's not what they expected. Rather than dealing with the facts and reaching an honest verdict about whether Jesus is who he claimed to be, it's easy to try and push Jesus away and avoid making a choice about him at all. Most people aren't comfortable rejecting Jesus outright, but they're also not willing to to face the consequences of actually recognizing him as the rightful king of their life. I like what one commentator said. Kings are not to be ignored. They're to be honored and obeyed. If Jesus is truly our king, then we will show his greatness in our homes, his patience in our trials, his diligence in our work, his faithfulness in our friendships, and his forgiveness for the people who are hard for us to love. Are you living for the king, or are you mocking him by living as if it hardly matters whether he's king or not? And then this last statement sums it up well. The claim of his kingship is not just a claim that Jesus makes about himself, but it's a claim that he makes on us. If Jesus is the creator of the universe... If he died in your place and rose again, then the only thing that makes sense is to trust your soul to him and submit your life completely to Christ. I have a, a friend who grew up kind of in Christian circles. She, she was not a Christian though, but she, she professed faith later. She got really excited for a season about Christ. But recently, sadly, she said, I'm not a Christian. She just formally said, I'm not a Christian. I'm not gonna follow Christ. And the reason is because she found that she had some deeply held core values that were contradicted by Scripture. The the Scripture said, no, 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 you can't live that way. You can't promote those things or, or value those things, promote those things. And so when push came to shove, 
she decided, I'm not going to follow Christ. She was excited about the idea of being a Christian. She was excited about Christian friends, but she wasn't actually excited about Christ. She didn't want Christ to be her ruler. And that's what happened with Pilate as well. He didn't want Christ as his king either. Again, we're going to see that more clearly next week. We're going to turn now, though, to our second main point, which is Jesus before Herod. Jesus before Herod. Verse 8 says, Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time he had wanted to see him because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. It's surprising to me, as I've read the rest of the Gospels, to hear that Herod was happy to see Jesus. If you go back to Luke chapter 3, Herod put John the Baptist in prison for publicly calling him out for the sin of marrying his brother's wife, Herodias. So Herod, he'd seduced somehow, he'd married his brother's wife, and John had called out that sin. And so Herod put him in prison. And in Mark 6, 19 through 20, we learn this. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. So again, this is Herod's wife. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. At this point, there was real sensitivity to the truth in Herod's soul. He was afraid of John, but he was also protecting John from his wife. He knew that John was a, a holy man. It seemed like there was even some sort of friendship that began to develop there. He wanted to hear John preach. And what did John preach about? John the Baptist preached about repentance, and he preached about how the Messiah was coming, the king was coming. It seems as if Herod, it seems as if he was able to sense that John in prison had something far more life-giving than all the lavish pleasure and sexual sin available to him in his palace. Herod's conscience, though, it was put to the test when he was tricked and cornered by his own wife at his birthday. For his birthday party, Herod invited his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So all the most influential men in his circle, he invited them to a big banquet that was no doubt flowing with lots of wine. They were all likely drunk when Herodias' daughter came and danced for them. And when you picture this, don't picture like a, a cute little girl dancing for entertainment. This is like adult entertainment. So she comes and dances, and she pleased the guest so much that Herod offered to give her anything that she wanted as a gift. Now, as many of you know, she asked for exactly what her mother instructed her to, John the Baptist's head immediately to be brought to her on a platter. Not in a week, not in a month. She said, I want John the Baptist's head right now. This was a crisis moment for Herod's conscience. And in Mark 6, 26, it says the king was deeply distressed by the request. That word, deeply distressed, the only other time it's used in the gospel is to describe the agony Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane as he wrestled with God about whether or not to go to the cross. Herod's soul, it really was in turmoil. He was in agony. And although he liked John and was afraid of John, he was even more afraid of losing face in front of his many distinguished guests. And so in the moment of crisis, verse 27 sadly shows us that he violently violated his conscience and ordered that John the Baptist 
be decapitated. Herod knew that what he had done was wrong. There's, there's no way around that. An additional evidence of his guilty conscience seems to be implied when Herod hears one of the popular Jewish rumors that suggested that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And Herod latched onto that. Herod's like, hmm, that, Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Again, seeming to imply he, it, was, it was still bothering him. It was still haunting him what he had done to a, a man of God that he knew was innocent. All that, again, makes it strange to me that, ha- that Herod was happy to see Jesus instead of scared. But Luke's gospel, it tells us why. He was excited to see Jesus because he was hoping to see a show. He was hoping to see a miracle. He'd been entertained by John's preaching, and his conscience seems that it's past that. It's beyond that, and now he's hoping to be entertained by a miracle from Jesus. But that is a background. I, I want you to listen to the rest of how Jesus' trial before Herod is described, beginning again in verse 8. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some, some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. This passage should be very sobering to each of us. When it says Herod kept asking Jesus questions, the verb tense indicates that he asked Jesus many questions for, for a length of time. And so this, this was a drawn-out interview process. But notice Jesus' response again. Jesus did not answer him. Jesus did not respond. This is the only person in all the Gospels that Jesus refused to interact with entirely. Jesus knew that Herod was not interested in the truth, but only in amusing himself. He knew that that Herod would not give him justice because he'd already beheaded innocent John. This passage should sober us because this man who was once afraid to put a prophet to death, he, he damaged his conscience so severely. He sinned against it so greatly that when the Messiah himself, when the one that John the Baptist had been preaching about was actually standing right before him, Herod had no discernible reverence or spiritual sensitivity left at all. Instead, he openly mocked Jesus and treated the Messiah with contempt, presumably going into his closet, summoning someone to bring out one of his own old robes and putting it on Jesus to make fun of his claim of being king. Now, despite the contempt here, Don't miss that Herod also did not find Jesus guilty of any crime. And Pilate later explicitly says that. When when Jesus is sent back to him, he tells the crowds, I didn't find him guilty of any charges, and neither does Herod. Herod's lack of respect for Jesus highlights again Jesus' innocence because this man, he doesn't like Jesus. Jesus won't provide him miracles. He won't just perform on command for him. And so Herod doesn't like Jesus, but even though he doesn't, He doesn't like Jesus. He mocks Jesus. He still sees no evidence that he's done anything wrong. So we see in this section of Scripture that Jesus was obviously innocent. The charges against him, they were were all lies, and the trial that, that he was a part of was an unjust condemnation of the only perfectly just man to ever live. And Herod, he was part of that process. 
the progression of, of Herod in the Gospels from fearing John the Baptist to openly disgracing Jesus vividly illustrates that your conscience, your conscience sensitivity can be irreparably damaged. We see Jesus' innocence in this passage, but I think something else that is, is so sobering is that your conscience, it can be irreparably damaged. The, the word that's used in Scripture for this is seared. Your, your conscience can be seared. You can go from being open to the truth like Pilate to mocking the very embodiment of the truth. Now, just this week, I, I talked to a brother from our church, and at work... There's a coworker that he has who just hates Christianity. He's just very, very uh, antagonistic towards, uh, towards Christ. And when he found out that this man in our church is a Christian, he began to mock him in front of the whole office. So everyone in his office could hear him ma- making, making fun of this guy and, and taunting him, calling, calling him the Antichrist. And so he was at one point even yelling. And everyone could hear about it. That's obviously an extreme example, but the, there are many examples in our culture of, of those who, who despise Christ. They mock the idea of Christianity. Our, our conscience, it can go from being open to the truth to mocking the very, the very idea of it. And the idea that I want you to, to understand is that your conscience, it's a precious gift from God. It's meant to, to be like the nerve receptor's in your skin to, to detect pain and protect you from danger. And I have a, a picture here because I want you to think about what happens if you accidentally touch a flame or something that's hot. What happens is you instinctively pull your hand away, right, to protect yourself. But what would happen if you just left your flame, your finger long enough in an open flame? If you, if you just kept it there long enough, what would happen is your sensitivity would eventually be lost. All those ner- nerve endings would be seared or cauterized and burnt to the point that they, they lost their, their ability to feel. And we see this in, in our own life when you think about times you really violated your own con- conscience. Maybe it was the first time that you got drunk. You know you shouldn't and you did it and you felt terrible afterwards. But if you kept doing it, eventually many people get to the point where it's like, it's just, they don't even think twice about it. The same thing can be true of, of sexual sin. For looking at pornography and masturbation. And there's friends I've had who, they, they'll get on hookup apps, dating apps, and they'll, they'll get with just random strangers. And at first it's like this wild thing, but then eventually there's people who, they get to a point where it's like, it's almost second nature. They, they don't even really think twice about it. Your conscience, again, can be seared to the point where it no longer does what God designed it to do. It's, it's damaged to protect us and to, to help us to be sensitized to what's right. Now, let me be quick to add that our conscience, our consciences are not infallible. So our, our consciences are not always reliable. They're meant to protect us, but the Bible is very clear, especially in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, that our consciences can be wrong. There are times where we view certain things that are bad as good, or vice versa. We can think something is, is uh, bad when it's actually Good, And so this means, as Christians, we always need to submit our consciences to the Word of God. We need to let the, the Holy Spirit working through the Scriptures continually recalibrate our consciences to line them up with what is truly good and right. Now, some of you, I've been thinking about Herod, 
and what he did. Some of you right, right now, you might be feeling uh, haunted by a time that you violated your own conscience. Maybe a time recently or maybe a dramatic time from the past. There's probably a, a few of you out there who are wondering, am I Herod? You know, have, I, have I violated my conscience to the point where it no longer can do what God wants it to do? And if you're worrying about that, then your conscience is still operational. <laughs> if that's bothering you, you're not in that boat yet. But the reason that all of us have a guilty conscience, like I, like I enjoy saying, the reason we all have a guilty conscience is because we're actually guilty before God. We're actually guilty before our Creator. Now, what we're guilty about, it, it differs from person to person. Some of us have badly mistreated others because of selfishness and envy, like the religi religious leaders did to Jesus. Some of us have turned a blind eye to unjust suffering like Pilate did because we were not willing to pay the price of standing up for what is right. Others of us have compromised and participated in, in great evil like Herod did because of a fear of losing the respect of others. All of us feel guilty about many of the things we have done, but we often fail to realize that our conscience, it, it ultimately reveals our consistent rebellion against God. It's not just about the way we've hurt other people. It's not just about the, way, the ways we failed to live up to our own standards. It ultimately reveals a, ref, a refusal to live according to God's righteous laws. So what should you do if your conscience is condemning you right now? Or what should you do the, the next time that it, it condemns you in the future? Well, what you should not do is make excuses. You see, when we feel guilty as human beings, we naturally make excuses to defend ourselves and try and justify what we've done. They started it. <laughs> they deserved it. I was tired. It's not as bad as what other people do. I'll never do that again. I know it was wrong, but I feel, I feel really bad about it. When our consciences condemn us, we immediately start trying to justify ourselves. And this is part of why God gave us his law on top of the consciences that he already embedded in us. Romans 3, 19 through 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. One of the primary purposes of the law is to shut every mouth before God. It's to shut my excuses and to shut your excuses. It's to end those and objectively demonstrate our guilt. It's to show no one is ever going to be justified before God based on how they've lived or based on how clean they've tried to keep their conscience. One of the things that that just jumped out to me the, the most going through this passage is how Jesus is perfectly innocent. And yet what he does is the exact opposite of what we naturally do as sinners when we're condemned. We, we make excuses. We beg for mercy. But Jesus remained silent. Why did he remain silent? Well, one commentator I was reading, he pointed out there are a few possible reasons for Jesus to remain silent. He might have remained silent because he knew that there was nothing left to say at this point. He'd publicly preached to the Jews for three years, and now they're trying to put him to death. What more was there to say? Second, he, this is related, he may have known that nothing he said would change their minds. 
This is what he told the religious leaders in in verse 67, right before the start of our chapter in, in Luke 22. He said, when asked if he was the Messiah, if I do tell you, you'll not believe me. It's like, even if I tell you that I am, you're not gonna believe it. Why argue a case in which you already know that no one will listen, in which you already know people have reached a verdict about you? So there may have been a few reasons that Jesus remained silent. Certainly part of why Jesus remained silent is because he had entrusted himself completely to God the Father's will. And he did that as an example for us to follow. Peter, he specifically cites Jesus' silence on trial as a pattern for how we're to carry ourselves in the face of injustice. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, he says, For you were called to this, Christian. If you're a Christian, we're called to the standard. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When I read this, it reminded me of my friend, as I was talking to him on the phone, the one I mentioned earlier who was getting yelled at in the office in front of all of these other people for being a Christian, I thought to myself, how, how would I respond there? How would you react in that, in that situation? You know, would, you, would you fight back? Would you, would you try and argue and put them in their place? Or would you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly? Would you be more concerned about the, rep- the, the reputation of Christ than your own reputation in that situation? Now, you can think about in a, a much smaller, maybe scale, maybe a more normal conflict that you have. When you have tension with a friend, tension with a roommate, tension with a spouse, is this the, the spirit that you have where you're not quick to speak? You're not not quick to, if you feel offended, to to push back and to put up walls and to point out faults with others if they they bring up something with you. Are you able to realize that even though Jesus never sinned, we often do, that we often can be at fault? And are you willing to listen and try and figure out, is there some truth in what this person is saying and in what this person maybe is, is challenging me on? Going back to that conversation I mentioned at the start of my message my, my friend who called me, I remember inside there was just this frustration growing. And by God's grace, I said, Lord, help me. <laughs> help me here. Help me to, to see if there's anything that's true, if there's anything that I can learn here. And as I listened, it was helpful because he was talking and I began to see there are ways that, that looking back, I could see how I frustrated him. And I thought to myself, there, there, is, there are tendencies that I have, the way that I'm wired, to frustrate the people that I'm leading if I don't communicate clearly. I could see that why he had felt the way that he felt. And I was like, I need to do a better job of keep pointing people to the gospel as I'm encouraging them and as I'm sharing my own convictions about how to follow Christ. And by the end of the conversation, I actually felt thankful. I was like, I feel, I feel like I, I see more clearly how I could have been a better friend to this man. And we were able to reconcile. And again, we don't see eye to eye on everything, but we're still friends. I think that's by, by the grace of God. Again, we want, we want to be people who are, are not quick to, to strike back if we feel like others are attacking us. 
Jesus was silent on trial, and he did that as an example of trusting in the Father completely. He did that as an example for us. There's also, though, another reason why Jesus remained silent, and that was a reason that's totally unique to him. It's something that we can never replicate. And do you know what that is? Jesus' silent suffering was a necessary aspect of his unique work of salvation. And that's because of the, the famous suffering servant prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. Jesus' composed silence during his trial, it captured this image perfectly of a lamb not fighting its shears while being prepared for death. Now, I've never seen a lamb before it's sacrificed. My guess is that probably none of you have, or most of you probably have not. Maybe a few of you have. But I read an account this week of a missionary in India who went to observe the sacrifices of various animals at a Hindu temple. And the animals there, they would get dragged to the altar, and then they would be beheaded with this large knife. And I want you to, to listen to the way the missionary described, uh, described the scene. As I watched everything unfolding from my perch atop a large boulder beside the temple, I directed my attention for some time to this poor little lamb and thought I'd never seen anything that looked so pure, so innocent, and so gentle. What made it all the more profound and relevant was the particularly nasty treatment of the same creature. And that's what really got me. It was so like how it indeed was with our Lord. The most pure and innocent and gentle enduring the most terrible misuse and mistreatment and death, pushed about, surrounded, roughly handled, and frightfully killed. They hacked its head off and threw its lifeless body on the ground. My God, is this not powerful? From this, can we not grasp even a little of what he undertook, the horrible, frightful anguish he endured himself for our sakes? It's easy for us as believers to become desensitized to the actual horror and pain of what Jesus went through on the cross. I know that that often happens to me. But that, that quote, it helped remind me of the reality that we're going to see as we study Luke together. The reality is that Jesus suffered more than we can fully comprehend at the cross. And he did it voluntarily. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And this is why he didn't argue his innocence. It's because he wanted to die for the guilty. All of us are going to stand before God someday in our own individual trial. And if we're judged by how we've lived, our guilt is going to be so undeniably clear or un undeniable that all of us are going to be left speechless. All of us will be silent before our Creator and deserving of hell. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. But Jesus died so that all who admit their rebellion against God can be saved by faith in his perfect life, death, and resurrection on their behalf. So why did Jesus stay silent in his trial? Jesus remained silent in his trial so that he could speak up for you. He remained silent in his trial so that he could speak up at yours. He didn't defend himself so that he could defend all who look to him for salvation on the day that we stand before the judgment seat of God. If you're not a Christian, then you have no defense to offer God when you stand before him. And the, the biggest need that you have is not to try and clean up your life, it's not to get your conscience just perfect. Your biggest need 
is to admit your sin and turn to God, to throw yourself on his mercy and ask him to save you and to recognize him as king of your life. For those of you who are Christians, we need to regularly be reminded that Jesus is our advocate and defender. Revelation 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. So Satan, he is the ultimate accuser. And he doesn't just accuse non-Christians. It says he accuses Christians. The, the image here is that every time you sin, every time I sin, Satan runs to God and he says, JC sinned again. He deserves hell. And is Satan right? On one hand, yes, I do deserve hell. But the difference, if you're a Christian, is that when Satan brings an accusation, he says, JC deserves hell. I can't defend myself. He's right. But I'm a believer. And so Jesus steps forward and Jesus speaks up for me. And Jesus says, paid in full. That sin has already been paid for. JC is righteous because he's been given my righteousness. See, if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to walk with Christ, it has to be clear in your mind as you fail, when you sin as you will, when you're accused of the devil, you have to learn to preach to your soul. You have to learn to remind yourself that Jesus remained silent in his trial so that he could speak up for you in yours. Just to close, let me suggest two practical applications from this passage. First, don't compromise your conscience. Don't compromise your conscience. Even though we're not saved by trying to keep our conscience clean, and even though it's possible for our conscience to be misinformed, that doesn't mean your conscience is unimportant. 1 Timothy 1.5 says this, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The condition of your conscience then plays a major role in your capacity to love God and to love those around you. I think sadly as Christians, we often treat our conscience not like our skin, which is easily injured and bruised and damaged. We treat our conscience like body armor. We pound on it, like we sin, and we think, that's not that big of a deal. Like, it's not gonna affect me that much. And we don't realize how big an impact it really does have when we ignore our conscience. Paul goes so far to say that if your conscience, if you violate your conscience, as long as it's not contradicting scripture, he actually says that you're, in sin. And so brothers and sisters, it, it is a big deal to fight not to compromise our conscience, not to, to compromise and, and violate it. And when we do, it is so important to repent as quickly as possible and praise Jesus for being our advocate and ask him for grace to not sin, to submit ourselves in a fresh way to him. Finally, my last appeal for any of you here who are not Christians or you're not sure if you've been born again, is give Jesus a fair trial. Give Jesus a fair trial. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but he didn't give him justice because he was afraid of what it would cost him to do so. And as we said earlier, many respond to, this, to Jesus the same way today when they realize that he claimed to be more than just a good teacher, more than just an example for us. He claimed to be the king of kings who's worthy of your whole lives. And if you've never realized that, or if you've never taken it seriously, I'd invite you to join us for the next two months of our Easter series in Luke as we look at exactly what Jesus did that changed all of human history and then what he commands you to do in response. I know it can be scary to even consider the possibility of, of surrendering your whole life to Christ. But let me just assure you that nothing could be better or more satisfying for your eternal soul than to entrust it to the one who died 
to give you eternal life with him. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect life. And thank you today for your silence. Thank you, Jesus, for your unique silence. And we thank you that because of that, because of the cross, you can defend us. You can speak up for us. I pray that we'd be more amazed by that and more more convinced of that than ever before. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to, to worship you like never before and to be excited about walking with you. We thank you for this time, and we pray all this in your great name. Amen.